I, I guess I take the silence as a sign that we should start. Uh, very well. Uh, my name is Oriana Bandiera. I'm a, a professor here in the economics department, and I'm one editor of Economica. Economica is the journal of the LSE economics department, and it is the journal that 80 years ago, it is the 80th birthday of Ronald Coe's article on the theory of the farm. And that is the article that set up our whole field of study of organizational economics. And it was published 80 years ago. So every year we have a lecture that honors the memory of Coe's. And I'm very, very pleased that this year, on the 80th birthday, we have Philippe Aguillon giving the Coe's lecture because I'm pretty sure that in a hundred years' time, people will be talking about his theories the way that we talk about Coase today. I could spend an hour telling you about all the achievements of Philippe, and that wouldn't be enough. I've seen the slides, and I know that he needs the entire hour for himself. So I'm not going to say anything more other than you're in for a real treat. It's a great honor and privilege to have Philippe as a colleague, and uh, I just leave the floor to him because I know that what's coming is really good. Thanks very Philippe, much. the floor Thank is you. yours. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, thanks, thanks very much, Oriana, for inviting me to give the lecture and uh, for being such a wonderful colleague uh, from the day I, I came to the, this school. Um, so... Um, I will talk, so Ronald Coase is known for various uh, huge contributions. He, he could have got several Nobel Prize. He could have got one for, uh, you know, for the theory of the firm, which he got. Uh, he could have got one for the, the Coase conjecture, which I teach in my uh, contract theory class. Um, and uh, uh, so... Um, and uh, <coughs> So here I will talk about firms but in relation to, uh, to growth economics, and, um, and I will talk about finance and growth and how competition among firms and firm dynamics uh, interacts with, uh, with uh, this relationship between finance and growth. So, in fact, I, I am, a, you know, my, my main field of work is growth economics, and I, I've tried to develop... Uh, with Peter Howitt initially and other co-authors uh, since then, uh, some what we call the, the Schumpeterian growth paradigm. Uh, the, the main ideas of this paradigm are that uh, long-run growth is driven by innovation. The, the second big idea is that innovation do not come from heaven. They result from uh, investments, uh, uh, from R&D investments, from innovative investments, and they are motivated by the prospects of monopoly rents for people who invest in innovation. So when you invest, it's like, you know, so policies and institutions will influence, will impact on the growth rate because they will impact on people's incentives to engage in R&D or other types of uh, uh, innovation-enhancing activities. Okay, so that's, uh, you can talk about policy and institutions of growth. And there is a third uh, main idea, which is creative destruction. The new firms, the new technologies replace the, the old technologies. So uh, growth is a conflicting process between the old and the new. And therefore, you can talk about political economy of growth. You have countries where, you know, uh, you, you let new firms replace old firms, 
and you have countries where old firms can manage to bribe the governments more and prevent new firms from innovating. You see, because the big contradiction there is that the innovators of yesterday, they become incumbents today, and they may be tempted to use the rents that they got to prevent entry and to prevent uh, changes in policies and institutions that would, that would make it easier for uh, new firms to come. Okay? So, so that contradiction is managed differently uh, in different countries. But, for example, why is it important to fight corruption? Because corruption, what is corruption? It is incumbents' uh, uh, way to p pressure governments to prevent new firms from coming. Okay? Why is it important to have free media? Because the free media uh, is a way to denounce corruption, you see? But, and so uh, you have some, some countries that have managed to do that, to, to both give rents to people who innovate, but make sure that those rents are not used to prevent entry and to buy politicians, and you have countries that are not so successful in, uh, in managing this contradiction. Okay? And that's, that has been the, the paradigm that I've, you know, I developed first with uh, Peter Howitt, and then other generations of economists have uh, uh, developed uh, more recently. Okay? And one big issue is the relationship between finance and growth. Is it good to have, what is the role of the credit market? Why is credit uh, important for growth, okay? And that will be my topic today. That's a topic that has been uh, analyzed for, uh, you know, several decades. And what I'm doing is to put some dynamics and competition into the analysis of the relationship between comp uh, finance and uh, innovation-based growth, okay? So that's what I'm doing today. Okay, so, uh, uh, so the, the tra on, on finance and growth, the, the, the traditional view would be that financial development would be unambiguously good for growth because it would make it easier to finance innovation. You see, so uh, you have work, for example, uh, King and Levin, uh, and particularly Ross Levin, have uh, done lot, uh, you know, several papers and surveys, uh, you know, and documenting about, about a positive uh, effect of uh, financial development uh, on growth. Uh, Rajan Zingales, 1998, have a paper which uh, again uh, shows the importance of uh, uh, you know credit for uh, for growth. Okay, and, and then there have been a number of other studies uh, also in developing countries, uh, Abhijit, uh, Esther, and others, and Oriana knows well, and Tim knows well, uh, uh, have been working on that at a more micro uh, uh, you know development level. And so what what we we'll do here is to argue that the effect of financial development on innovation-based growth is in fact ambiguous, and it intersects with competition and firm dynamics, okay? And, uh, uh, um, so, uh, and in fact, what I will show in the first part of my lecture, I will show that the effect of finance on growth is uh, non-monotonic because of reallocation effects. And we will see the nature of reallocation effects. For example, some people have been denouncing low interest rate in booms, and one reason why low interest rate in booms may be bad for growth is because they, they spur this reallocation. You give the money to, bad, to, the, to not the most efficient firms. Okay. And, uh, and that has, uh, that has uh, consequences. Okay. So that's what I will be showing uh, uh, the, uh, uh, in the first part. Okay. And uh, in the second part, I will look at uh, the growth enhancing effect of uh, monetary easing, for example, of uh, uh, the quantity easing that you've, of the kind you've seen in the U.S. first, and then with Draghi in, Euro, uh, in the in the eurozone, and uh, and I will argue that the effects of this kind of policies on gro productivity growth 
depends very much on competition and, uh, uh, and interacts with the product market characteristics. Okay, so, and in fact, I think it's an important idea because if you look at macroeconomics, there is barely any I.O. there. The, the, very few people have tried to put I.O. in macro. There's been very little to analyze monetary policy or fiscal policy. There is barely any uh, uh, micro. And I think that's a huge area for future research. It's a huge, completely unexplored. I'm just touching the, uh, upon it, you see. Okay? So, uh, by the way, I should say that this lecture, I see it as a double tribute to Mario Draghi, whom I am a big fan. I am dreading the day that he will leave as head of ECB, because God knows who will fall upon our heads. But, uh, uh, um, I, in fact, uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron, you know, I interact with various people asking who you think should become head of ECB. My, my, I don't want to talk about that here, but uh, uh, there are some people whom I know, I, I really hope and pray that they won't become head of the ECB. Uh, but no names here, uh, because that, uh, that would be dangerous for me. Okay, so, uh, uh, so wh why is it a double tribute? First, because Mario Draghi, when he made a speech, an important speech in Jackson Hole in 2014, he, he, he stressed the following idea. He said, look, me with like, of course it's important to have quantity easing or low interest rate and things when you have recessions. But you, I, I do my part of the job. But countries need to do their part by doing structural reforms, in particular by liberalizing the product and labor markets. And, and he had this view that the two were complementary. But there was no econometric study of that. The second part of the lecture will be exactly on, in fact, and the whole lecture, more generally, about vindicating this idea that Draghi, this, I think, very important insight, because by saying that there is complementarity between uh, proactive macro policy and structural reforms, he is pointing, Draghi, at this uh, need to put I.O. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and market structure into macroeconomic analysis, okay? And uh, uh, so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the first uh, respect in which this is a tribute to Mario Draghi. There is another one, is that I will use EC, uh, uh, ECB, uh, 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 European Central Bank programs that Draghi initiated as instruments, because you see, I will show a number of regressions, but of course they raise the issue of endogeneity, and you need to instrument. And the nice thing with Draghi is that Draghi gives me the instruments, okay? So he's good also on the econometric side, okay? So that's... Uh, that's what I will. Uh, that's what I will. Uh, I will also argue. Okay. So uh, 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 now there have a problem there. Is that I don't know why, but this. Ah no. Okay. Okay. So now the outline of uh, of my talk will be in two parts. Okay. Part one, I will look at how entry costs and uh, and firm dynamics interact with uh, the relationship between finance and growth and produces an inverted U relationship between financial development and growth. A little bit of finance is important for innovation. Too much finance may, uh, uh, may some, under some circumstances, be detrimental, okay? And, and we will explain how it can be detrimental, okay? So that's my first part. Uh, uh, part two uh, uh, is that I will, uh, I will exactly lo look at, uh, at the effects, uh, at the growth effects of uh, uh, of quantity easing of, of a particular uh, ECB program which uh, helped uh, spur, you know, uh, lower the cost of credit for firms. And I will argue that the effects of this program was bigger wherever you had more product market competition. Okay, so that will really be directly vindicating Draghi, Draghi's uh, Jackson Hole speech. Okay, 
and that's what uh, that will be the that's the, the menu. Okay, so I thought the thing here is that uh, uh, I need okay. So part one, the inverted new relationship between financial development and productivity growth. So this is based with work that I've done with colleagues at Banque de France because we have good data at the Banque de France and we can explore this data and we can merge bank, level, bank data with firm data. And, uh, uh, and in fact, uh, it's still working. So I, I will show you what we've done so far and, uh, and we are still working on this. So it's work in progress, in fact, uh, uh, and I will show you what, what we are doing. Okay, so, so the motivation for this was the, the debate on the secular stagnation. I don't know if you, if you heard about that, but you see there is this concern that productivity growth rate in the US and in other developed countries, in developed countries has gone down uh, since after the crisis, since, even, even since 2006, you see. So, uh, uh, so for example, here, that's uh, my colleagues at Banque de France, but other people would have uh, done these calculations. In fact, today, there is a conference at, in Harvard, organized by Dale Jorgensen, uh, the CLEMS group. I don't know if you heard about the CLEMS data set. And uh, uh, my colleagues from Banque de France are there presenting their work. And they show these kind of waves. So that's the, the wave. This is annual growth rate of labor productivity per hour for the US. And uh, uh, of course, you correct for the short-term variation. But you see that since, in fact, since 2000, if we correct for variation, you see, you, you, you see this kind of decline. That's a... Uh, so, and what people want to understand is why you have this decline, okay? That's a big issue nowadays, very hot issue, okay? You can look at the euro area uh, and you have a decline as well. You can look at uh, Japan or there, it's, uh, it's, uh, you're plunging, huh? Uh, uh, so that's, uh, and, uh, uh, oh, now it's another, uh, you know, I have a problem with this. It works or it doesn't work. Uh, uh, so that's Japan there. And, uh, and there have been various stories for this. So for the slowdown, I will just tell you about, in, in, in a few words, about various stories. But I will focus on another story. One first story is that you mismeasure productivity growth. We don't know how to factor in the contribution of innovation to productivity growth. We don't know when the monetary value of an object goes up, if it is inflation, or if it is really the real value of the good that goes up. And it's particularly a problem where you replace one good by another good. Uh, if you have the same object yesterday and today, you know it's pure inflation if the monetary, you know, monetary value went up. If I just change the tap of this bottle uh, uh, and uh, the monetary value went up, I more or less know how much is inflation and what was the, the increase in value due to changing the tap of the bottle. But if I replace this bottle by this glass, Okay, then the statistical office is totally lost and they in fact ignore it. They just use goods that were there yesterday and today. Whenever there is creative destruction, they just ignore it, you see. And, uh, and by doing that, I've done recent work that show that in fact, there is a, a productivity growth is way higher than what we measure. So it's true that compared to, uh, to if you look compared to the curve that I just showed you, uh, uh, if the US for example, the US they are there. But they have been always like that, but still it goes down. It goes down by a bit less. You may explain 10% of the decline that way, but you are above. So at least I can tell Gordon, Robert Gordon, it's, uh, there is no stagnation in the US. There is secular uh, decrease, but stagnation you don't have because you are way above this curve, okay? But still, I don't explain the decline. 
I want to explain the secular part of Gordon uh, claim, okay? And there, uh, the measurement on... Uh, uh, it's true, I, I only looked at one source of this measurement, which is the fact that uh, statistical office doesn't know how to factor in creative destruction. We know there are many other sources of possible mismeasurement. For example, free access. I know that free access means that goods are not priced. Uh, we know that, for example, to take a photo picture, it used to be very costly to take a photo picture, now you take it with your, with your iPhone. So there, uh, is that taken into account? You know that uh, you have, uh, you, you know that Apple uses inputs from 28 countries. It, that, do you calculate, do you, do you allocate to each country what is due to each country in terms of its contribution to political growth? So there are many other sources of mismeasurement. But what, but I will not talk about it today. Okay, so that's a huge issue, is the mismeasurement. And I could do another lecture on mismeasurement only. Okay? Uh, uh, there, is a, uh, there are other stories. One is by my colleague John Van Rinen with uh, uh, colleagues from the, with Nick Bloom and uh, Chad Jones and the fourth co-author. Usually, but I know today is not the case. When I, I don't know the name of the co-author, the guy raised the hand, it's me, and my name is X. But uh, I, I trust that it's not the case. He's uh, uh, in the US. Uh, so there is this view that ideas are harder to get. It was easy to get ideas before, but now it's harder and harder to invent. I, I don't believe very much in this explanation. I believe that you run into decreasing return on each particular line of product, but then you always find new lines, and there you start again. So I, am, I, am, I have issues with this explanation based on ideas harder to get. It's always harder to get ideas on the same thing, but it's like in research, we start new fields, and then boom, a, whole, a, whole, a whole thing open up. Like when I tell you put uh, uh, IO in macro, it's, uh, it's a huge area to be opened up, okay? And there you're going to increasing returns, not decreasing returns. Okay? So uh, I have doubts on that. There is another one which I think is much more promising, is that there's been reduced, it has to do with competition, is the idea that market concentration has gone up in the US and other developed countries, and competition has gone down. And the view that as a result, maybe incumbents have become very strong and they prevent new people to come and innovate. You see? A bit like some people like Olson and Mokir, who is a very good dear friend of uh, Tim and I, uh, 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 would argue that maybe at the turn of the 20th century, there was a slowdown because the, the big innovators that did the Industrial Revolution, they became entrenched incumbents and they could bribe governments to, to slow down the entry of new guys. So I don't, is the same thing going on this time. So that's one explanation. But I will, uh, here I will talk about another story. And the other story is that what you've had, is that what you've observed over the past years is a decrease in interest rate and, and, uh, and, more, and more generally a relaxation of credit constraints on firms that allowed in, in, inefficient incumbents to remain on the market. And the fact that the incumbents could remain on the market would raise the entry cost for potentially efficient entrants. And, and that's the reallocation effect. You make life so easy for the big elephants that the elephants prevent entry from the gazelle, you know, the efficient gazelle who want to enter the market, okay? And uh, uh, it's a very similar effect that, as in a paper by Asimoglu and co-authors called Reallocation and Growth where that argues that when you do industrial policy in a way that advantages incumbents, you make it harder for entrants to come. It's very much the same effect, but you just apply it to credit constraints. Okay. So, uh, uh, I need this chat to go down, but that's very good. I need to walk. So it's perfect, in fact, this. Uh, okay. So that shows you, in the various countries, 
Uh, I didn't put Liechtenstein here, but I could have. You see, it's uh, the fantastic this Bank of France. They tell you everything about everybody. Uh, but you see that essentially you tend to have a decreasing trend in long-term interest rate. Okay, and uh, uh, so that view is that the, the cost of credit has gone down, and and there's been this view that this might have contributed uh, to the to the slowdown because of this negative reallocation effect. So what I will do here is to to, put, to give evidence of this reallocation effect. I will not tell you how important an explanation it is in the slowdown, but I will just tell you that it's there. I will not quantify how important it is, okay? So, in fact, the idea there is that financial development or, financial, or, the, or the reverse of financial development, which is financial constraints, uh, financial constraints uh, is bad for innovation-based growth because when you are more constrained, you have less to invest on innovation. More, uh, tightening the credit makes it harder for firms to invest in innovation. That should be, have a direct effect on, on innovation-based growth, which is negative. But on the other hand, you can have this allocation effect that like we call the cleansing. When you have tighter credit, it's harder for the inefficient elephants to remain, and then maybe more efficient firms can enter, and that can have a positive effect on aggregate productivity growth. Okay? And what I will look is the interplay between these two forces. Are you still alive? Uh, is that okay? You want me to slow down? No? Fine? Okay. Okay, so the model, I, don't, I won't bother you with the model. I just, uh, you know, uh, uh, so don't, don't bother, you know, with the... Uh, uh, it's just a, a growth model where, uh, which generates this inverted U relationship between financial constraints and growth of uh, financial revenue. So the idea is that you produce... Uh, a finite good, oh, you know, there is a problem there, is that this, it's unstable. There is this, uh, uh, the, the thing changes, you see, I don't touch it. <laughs> there is a problem there, yeah, it's very bad. I think there is a problem, I think I will do away with this. Okay, so, uh, uh, so you produce finite good with a continuum of intermediate inputs, okay, yj. The inputs you produce with labor, and AJT is the, is the productivity of labor in producing the intermediate input. Innovation here will increase the A. So when I have a, a better technology, is that I can produce my input more cheaply, and therefore I can drive out the previous uh, uh, producers of that input because I can price my input lower than the previous producer, and that's how you have the creative destruction. You see what I mean? So each time you have an innovation, A becomes gamma A, where gamma is greater than 1. And I displace the previous producer. Okay? So now in this model, uh, uh, firms can have different size. So typically, for example, I am, I am a firm, I, I have several plants, and each plant is like one product. And here is a, I, I picture the firm with four products. Okay? And I may not be equally good on stocks. On this one, I'm okay, but on this one, I'm particularly good. On this one, I'm fine, etc. Uh, in this world, firms can grow and shrink and enter and exit. How you enter, you are nobody, and suddenly I innovate upon, for example, this line. I go from there to, uh, I will use the pointer, you see still. I will, uh, now I know how to use this technology. No, except we have the pointer. So I am nobody, but I will innovate upon this one. So I, I, I go from being a zero uh, product firm to a one product firm, but this firm will shrink from being a four product to a three product. Do you understand how it works? And you exit if you are one line and someone innovates upon you, then it's exit. 
If you are nobody and you innovate upon someone, it's entry. But then firms can shrink if someone uh, replaces them and do better than them on one of their lines, or they can expand because you allow firms to themselves innovate on the product line of someone else. And then in that case, this firm, which, which has four products on this line, would expand to five products. You see how this works? And that's how you have growth, shrink, entry, exit in a very simple model where you have these innovations, okay? That's, that's the model I will use. So now, the, the, what I will do is that I will assume that the cost of innovation, so that's the cost, I will say the, you can have an intensity per line, so here is the total innovation cost of, uh, uh, of a firm which has N products, and, he wants, and I assume that this firm wants to achieve this intensity of innovation per line, and I will assume that that's the cost. Okay, and that's the Z, and the, and the firm will choose its Z optimally. I, I can choose how much I want to invest in Z. Uh, now the problem is that I might have credit constraints that, that constrain me how much I can invest in R&D. You see? So, uh, uh, so I suppose that in fact, you cannot suppose that in fact, right well, now I look at the, where is the, oh here, yeah, so if I don't find the, suppose that in fact, you cannot invest more than new times your value, okay? So I assume that I have a certain value, and I can go to the bank and I say, that's my value. And they will say, look, you can only invest a fraction of this value. Otherwise, I don't trust you. You see what I mean? If there was no credit constraint, you could invest up to the net present value of your profits up to infinitum. Here, you will just tell you, you can invest only a fraction new of your value. And mu is the measure of credit constraint. When mu is small, you have very tight credit constraint. When mu is bigger, you have more relaxed credit constraint. So a lower interest rate will increase the mu. You understand? When Draghi comes and does monetary easing, it increases mu. Okay? When then you have a Bundesbank, or, or I don't know, other heads, I don't know, very tough, he uh, may, I don't know, what will happen? He may reduce mu, increase mu, I don't know. Anyway, so uh, you see, because of that, the maximum research, the maximum innovation intensity is limited by this mu. You cannot go beyond that. Mu, the higher mu, the max, it affects the maximum possible. So this constraint may be binding or not binding. It could be that, in fact, the optimal Z that you would like to do, because if there are anyway cost of innovation, is less than this. So in this case, the credit constraint is not binding. But it could be that the thing you would have done is bigger than what the credit market allows you to do. In this case, you say that the constraint is binding. And there, this inequality becomes an equality. Okay, so I don't bother you with the model, but in fact, the nice thing is that you can show that you have the growth rate, you can express it as a function of mu. And uh, here I, I concentrate on one case, which is the case where the incumbent firms are constrained, okay? Uh, and the case where the incumbent firms are the credit constraint, you have, a, you have these two effects. In increasing mu will increase growth because it will make everybody be able to invest more in R&D. That's the direct positive effect. But you have a negative effect we place through reallocation. When you increase mu, in fact, you make it uh, uh, more costly for people to enter because it will work through the labor market. The incumbent firms will employ more people, and if the entrant firms want to get in, they have to, they have to hire people who already work in existing firms. They have to bid up for workers, and that increases the cost, and that will have a kind of deterrent effect. 
And here I have the, uh, uh, when you have that the size of innovation of entrance is bigger than the size of innovation of incumbents, you in, in fact get the inverted U, you see? And typically when you start, you are very efficient, you do big innovations, and then you tend to do uh, lower and lower innovations, okay? But you can see these two effects. There's the direct effect, and you have the indirect reallocation effect. That plays through, through the labor market. You see, but it could be other inputs that you are using and for which you compete with incumbent firms, okay? And so, for mu small, uh, uh, when you start from very, uh, no credit at all, you increase, you, uh, you relax the credit market a bit from a very, very tight credit market, then it's, the overall effect is good on growth. But you can show that when you are already uh, with high, uh, uh, you know, where financial development is already high, you relax credit market more, you can get uh, uh, the fact that growth goes down because then this reallocation effect may come to dominate this direct effect, okay? And that's the inverted U. This is the, the essence of the inverted U, okay? And uh, uh, I, that's all the theory I will do today. No more mass. Finito, okay? You've been brilliant, you've been patient, you are very nice with me. And So you start from very, very constrained and you relax credit constraint, the first effect is to increase growth because you will have this direct effect uh, here. Uh, yeah, it's, this never works. True. It's a pity that I cannot control. Uh, the, when you start from very constrained, it's this effect that will dominate. But then at some moment, it's this effect that will come to dominate, you see? And that's what you have here. And at some moment, it's this other effect that dominates, and then you have a detrimental effect of reducing credit constraint of more financial development on growth. Okay, so now I want to go to the data. So what we've done is to explore French-level, uh, uh, French data, okay? It's still, uh, so the main source of data comes from a, 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 a data set called FIBEN. FIBEN is a large French firm-level database constructed by the Bank of France and based on fiscal documents, including balance sheet, contains detailed information on firms' activity and size. It's totally comprehensive. So I'm doing work on, on, on trade and, and, and innovation with Melitz. We use this kind of data, with this data. It's, it's extremely, you get all the data you want. No. So, uh, uh, and another source of data to measure the access to credit is the firm's quotation by Bank of France. The Bank of France Look, at, does an analysis of each firm. Says, is it very solvent, not very solvent? Is it a reliable firm or not for credit access? Okay, and that will be a measure, a first measure of credit constraint, which I will instrument later. Okay, so you might be worried about the endogeneity, and that's where the dragging instrument will come and save us. Whoa! And you will instrument, and things will go fine. Yeah, I can see Tim having. Uh, uh, it's better than go to a movie or thing. Huh? Ah, okay, so uh, uh, okay, very good. So, uh, so the quotation system is a, uh, is a rating that uh, classifies uh, firms according to their financial strengths, okay? So you go from the best, which is a 3 plus, to P, which is very bad. The 3 plus plus, you are excellent capacity to meet your financial commitment. Then you move to 4 plus, there it's uh, rather strong capacity. So I will put all those in one category, which I call A. Then you can go be below, and you see that the thing here is that it's a bit careful. The higher the, the number, the, the worse you are. Okay? That's a bit, uh, you, you can get that. Okay? So the, you want a low number here. 
like number one, you see, not number 20. Okay, so when you go from four, when you are at four, you, are, you have a correct capacity to meet your financial commitment. Five plus, you have a rather weak capacity. And here you, are, you, are, you have the, the bottom of the class, okay? That's weak, that's weak capacity, and this is almost liquidation. Quite. Those are firms that you think are, are, are good for, about to die, okay? That's, uh, that's where you are, huh? So, uh, uh, so you can, what's very interesting is that indeed you can see that firms that are, you can look at the, the liquid, what happened in terms of the firm and you can see, you can calculate the probability of liquidation. And you see that the lower, the, the more you move from A to C, the higher the probability that the firm ended up being liquidated. You have a predictive power of liquidation looking at the quotation, okay? So uh, then the next thing you can do is to say, well, indeed, is that a measure of credit access quotation? Yes, because in fact, banks, they look at the Bank of France quotation. And they say, should I lend to this firm? If the Bank de France said, oh, God, it's not a reliable firm, banks are very fearful to lend. And in fact, you can see that interest rates uh, uh, go down. I take as a reference group here the B, which is in the middle. If I move from B to A, that reduces the short-term and long-term interest rate, and it increases the, the, the short-term and long-term amount of loan that I get. And if I move from A to C, uh, it's the other way around. It increases my interest rate, and it and here you don't see a significant negative effect on the amount of loan, that it increases the cost of credit. So you can see that this quotation measure is very much related to the, you see, the, the easiness to access credit, measured by the amount of loans that you get, and by, most importantly, the interest rate that you get, that banks lend you to, okay? When they perceive you are very risky, they charge you higher interest rate, okay? Okay, so uh, I will start doing sectoral level analysis. And uh, each year, and for each two digit, two digit to know, you know how it, you have the economy as a whole. Then you have a, a way to cut the economy, but very broad, which will add one digit. But then you can go into more, you can two digit, and then you can cut, it's like a sausage, you know, the saucisson, sausage, you can cut in, in big and small, there's three digit, four digit, and you go very, uh, I'm not good at doing that, I love you, concombers, and you try, no, but anyway, so you can, uh, and so here we look at two digit manufacturing sectors, and for each sector, we, we calculate something we call the spread. And the spread is the difference between the average rate of new credits to firms in that sector and the EONIA. And the EONIA is, uh, is not a kind of, uh, is the, is the, is the average rate of interbank transactions. You see, it's the rate at which banks lend to each other. And that's, uh, uh, and we, and for, we have that for each sector and you compare that to the sector average, the cross sector average. So if you have a, a sector where the, the, the rate of new credit is much higher than the EONIA compared to the average, you know that, you see that uh, uh, there it's, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very credit constrained sector. Okay? So what I will do is to take this spread measure as a measure of how much credit constraint there is on average for firms in a sector, and I will look at how this affects uh, 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 growth in the sector. Okay? So what I will do is, the, is very simple. I will regress uh, the, the sector's growth rate, uh, productivity growth rate, uh, GST, so TFP growth rate. So the GST is the TFP growth rate of sector S in your T as a function of the spread and the spread square. I want to show that there is an inverted U. And what you can see is that when there is, uh, uh, alors the spread uh, is in fact 
the, 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 when you have the spread, it means that you are in fact the lower curse of uh, the lower curse. So when you have, uh, 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 so, so what you see is that you have this inverted view because spread and spread square have different sides in the regression. You see, financial development and the square of financial development have a, have a different sign in the regression, okay? And, uh, 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 and that's particularly true for what I call Rajat Zigales high, which means sectors that are, which are very much relying on external, uh, external finance, okay? And it's particularly true for those sectors that are prone to be uh, credit constraints. So I look at whether these sectors in the U.S., uh, rely a lot on external finance. And so, in fact, you, you can look, here I have the sectoral spread, and here you have the TFP growth, and in fact you can show that you have this inverted view. But that's just the correction. I didn't do any instrumenting here, but I already see this, uh, this inverted view. Now you could already say, well, maybe productivity would affect quotation, but in fact there are a lot of arguments that many solvency that affect quotation and not, uh, uh, not productivity. But I will go further and I will do the instrument in a moment. But already you have this inverted view. Now of course that's what you get at sectoral level and uh, uh, you would like to go uh, beyond sectoral level, okay? And uh, uh, so, uh, so the, problem there, uh, uh, the problem there is that you have two problems. One problem is that the inverted U, you see the inverted U, one part of the inverted U is that more financial development allows firms to invest more in innovation. It's firm level directly. The other one is based on the reallocation effect. You see what I mean? So you cannot see that at the firm level directly. You need to look at entry and exit. You need to look at the firm dynamics. You cannot see that directly. You have to look at exit and entry. You see, so what I will do is, 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 is show evidence that firms uh, growth is spurred by more financial development, but that also exit and entry are, are, uh, are affected when you increase financial development. So uh, what we do here is that we look at uh, uh, productivity growth, and, uh, and what, you, what you can show is that uh, A firms, uh, uh, A firms, you see, they grow faster. When you move from B, which is the reference to A, you have higher rate of, T of TFP growth. When you move from B to C, you have lower rate of, of, of TFP growth. So that's the direct effect of uh, finance on growth. Is the, the effect you see, that makes that financial development is good for growth. But now I want to get at, at firm level uh, uh, at uh, the other effect, okay? So then I have to look, I, I have to look at entry. And uh, here what I do is to, uh, here it's an exit in fact. I'm looking at exit as a function of the quotation. And uh, uh, the D is a dummy for being below, uh, 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 below the 25th percentile in productivity distribution. So if you are a D, you are low productivity distribution. And what you can see is that, in fact, uh, 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 when you are, what you can see here is that low productivity firms are less likely to exit when they have a A category. You see what I mean? If you are a low productivity firm, you might exit, but if you have a good quotation, you get good conditions from the bank and you stay. The, 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 the problem is when you are low productivity and you are in the C category, then you are cut. You are bad and you are cut and then you leave. And that's how you see the cleansing effect of, 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 of being denied credits. You see? And you can see that here. You, uh, here, the exit probability, moving from B to C, uh, <coughs> you see the probability of exit is higher. Whereas uh, when you are in the low, in the low category, uh, uh, in the A category, the probability of exit is much lower. So you can show that here. So that, that's a, a parametric survival model. I don't want to bother you with this. 
This figure represents the difference between the liquidation probability of high versus low productivity firms for virus ratings. So you see that among firms that have high ratings, the probability of, uh, of high versus low uh, uh, of exit is, is within a very small margin. You see what I mean? But then when you move from A to C, the, the, margin, the difference in margin between low versus high productivity exit is much bigger. You see what I mean? For uh, low productivity, they are much more likely to exit than high productivity. When they are A-rated, they have almost the same probability of exit. You see what I mean? So the, 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 the being denied finance is a way to select, is a selection mechanism. For high productivity firms, being, uh, you know, uh, uh, so if you are, you say, well, you tighten credit, you go from there to there, you, you are, you, it's much more detrimental to low productivity firms than if you are here. So uh, now the problem is, as I told you, causality. You want a causal relationship. So then comes Draghi. And Draghi tells you, look, uh, uh, I have a program called the Additional Credit Claims, ACC. In the euro area, banks can pledge corporate loans as collateral in their refinancing operations with the ECB, uh, as long as these loans are of sufficient quality. So the idea is that you use the quotation to, to say, do you qualify for, uh, uh, you see, uh, can you pledge these corporate loans or not? So remember that I had the category A rating 3 plus plus to 4 plus, category B 4 to 5 plus, category C 5 and below. And what was the program? The program is that you extended the eligibility criterion to include firm rated 4. The, the, these ones were eligible. But this, the, below it, they were not eligible before. And what Draghi does is that he says, these guys, they will join that group, and the eligible will become that group. So you are extending credit by, by, by expanding the eligibility. You, you see what I mean? And that's what I will use as an instrument. You see? I, will do, I, I, do the, I use this quasar natural experiment as to, to identify a, a, a relaxation of credit constraint. You understand? You allow more firms that are lower rated to access this, uh, this, uh, this uh, lending uh, possibility, this borrowing possibility. So the ICC extended the eligibility criterion to include firms rated for in the Banque de France quotation. It was announced in December, so when Draghi was done, implemented in February, it was very fast. And you see now, this is beautiful. You see, look at this, look at this thing. You see prior, that's really the, the natural experiment for you. You see that that's like North and South Korea in Darren's book, okay? Uh, uh, prior to the ACC, prior to when Draghi implemented it, you had the group, the treatment group is four, and the control group is a five plus. Before they were in the same group, and they were treated the same. So the evolution, the, the, the load, the growth in, in loads that they got was the same. And then you see that after the ACC, the, 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 the category 4 maintains its level of loans, whereas the group 5, the level of loans drops. You see, I mean, the, the, the two lines diverge very much. And that's what I'm using, is this impression of this ACC that I'm using as an instrument, okay? So, uh, uh, so what we do now is to uh, uh, first look at growth. Uh, uh, you see, so here, uh, in this, in this uh, line, Treated, treated means uh, it's a dummy variable equal to one for firms that used to be rated four at the end of the period before and that joined the group of eligible. You see, those are the treated. The control is the five plus. Is those are who remain on, who were in the same group as the four, 
uh, but at the same category of quotation, but they were not eligible. And, and you can see that you have, and post-ACC is just a, a time variable, a dummy variable equal to one for years uh, 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 of ACC onward. So it's zero before ACC implementation and one after. And then you have a, uh, you have a, 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 fixed, a, a firm fixed effect and a sector year fixed effect. And so what you see is that for all firms, you see that uh, uh, for the treated firms, you see the dependent variable is product growth was boosted. Uh, the productivity growth for firms was boosted by the, by the ACC. You see what I mean? That's what you see here. Okay? And, uh, and particularly in sectors which were highly dependent on external finance. Okay? So that's the, the, that's the direct effect of financial development. And the direct effect is that it boosts your innovation and growth. Okay? But comes now the, uh, the indirect reallocation effect. And that, again, I see through exit. So I redo exit. I cannot see through the term individually. I have to look through exit. So here I do exactly the same regression, but with exit there. Okay? And what do I see? I see that in fact you have a negative. All what was positive becomes negative. You see, exit is reduced. You see, for uh, uh, by the program. You see, it reduces exit. And, uh, and that's really nice is that it does so more in high. Uh, 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 you see in. Um, so, so that's, what you, that's what you see, and particularly in high IZ, uh, high regions in the sectors. It, uh, it have, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's there that it uh, has this uh, reallocation effect, okay? So the conclusion is that financial easing, uh, uh, making things easier by relaxing financial constraints, has a positive direct effect on innovation and growth, like uh, King Levin uh, and others would say, and, uh, uh, but it has also a negative reallocation effect uh, uh, through uh, uh, exit. Like when you reduce exit, you reduce entry. And uh, uh, this reallocation effect can lead to an inverted view relationship between financial development and growth. The easing of interest rate over the past decades may thus partly explain the observed slowdown in productive growth by how much this remains to be done. Is that important or not important? This is not something we've done so far. Okay? So that's part one of the lecture. Are you still alive? And now we move to part two. Are you still there? Ah, fantastic. Okay. By the way, there is another implication. I'm doing another paper because it's not. Uh, you get three papers on the price of two. Uh, uh, so because of that, I can, I, I, I can drink something, no, don't you? But I will not. You will not get data there. I will not bother you with uh, with, with further regressions. Is Korea? You know, there was always. I've been saying that the big problem is that develop, developing countries they have imitation-based economy, so they go through imitation like China, but at some moment they want to become innovation-based. The problem is, during the imitation period, that's work that I've done with Fabrizio Zivote and Darren Asemoglu, and, uh, uh, is that during the, the, the imitation phase, you have some firms that grow big in Korea. Is anybody from Korea here? Yeah, how you pronounce showboys? Showboy, I cannot do that. I am always ashamed. Chevron, like I have to really train, you know. We, we, we need, uh, we, I, need to, I need training lessons, okay. Okay, so when you have these big shovels, and the shovels, what they do is that they prevent entry. They are like big elephants that I was talking about before, and they prevent entry. But you see, there is something that happened in Korea. It's not to say it was a great thing. It, uh, there was a financial crisis of the late 90s, 
And what the financial crisis did there is to weaken the chobos. You see, they could not be as active in bribing government, in preventing entry, and, and, when, and whenever you have that crisis coming, you see that the chobos' market share goes down, the market goes down, I will show you, and suddenly the entry of more efficient firms and more innovative firms started up. And it's exactly the same allocation effect that I was talking here. But it's another way to show it. You see what I mean? Suddenly you have these big mastodont, you know, and then you, boom, you, you, you put the blow on their head, you know, which is the financial crisis, boom, and then, you know, oh God, I break my, my glasses, and then, uh, uh, and then they are less able to prevent entry. You see what I mean? And that's the paper. I go, is Kanshul here? Kanshul is here, here? No, he's like, oh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so you know how to pronounce trouble. You are very shy. Well, they the post of the paper, so you know. And uh, a lot goes to Kanshul and also Sergei Boyev. Uh, whom we, I'm sure you know also. And, uh, and so the, ba the basic idea is that Korean growth before 97-98 crisis rely on the Chobol model. Chobol supported each other and effectively restricted entry on non-Chobol firms. The Chobol-based model did manage to deliver in terms of industrialization, investment, and export growth, but they acted, the Chobols, as barriers to entry to new innovative firms. The Asian crisis came and undermined the legitimacy of the Chobol model. You see here that the market that the mark caps of non-shovel firms remain the same before after the crisis. But if you look, you can see that after 98, the market, the, the, 10 minutes? Oh my God, this is dramatic. Okay, well, it, will be, it will be 10 and a half minutes, okay? And, uh, and uh, you see that the shovel became weaker, and what we show is that indeed, uh, because of that, we show that in fact, uh, uh, the, the, after the industries previously dominated by showballs, uh, in fact, witnessed higher entry and faster TFP growth of non-showball firms. Okay, so now let's go to the second part. <clears throat> I'm 10 minutes left, and this is terrible. Okay, so why is Europe, so the draggy, you know, there was this idea, why is Europe less resilient? There was various views about that. But in fact, various are true. One thing is that it's true, we used to have much more fearful monetary policy. We didn't have, you know, you know, we didn't have quantity easing, it took a while, I mean, to happen in Europe, okay? So that was one reason. But another reason that Draghi would point out is that there was less uh, flexible markets. And here in this story, I will show you that both are important, okay? So I will cut through because I, I have little time left. But well, to show that point, uh, 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 and for first, why should that be the case? Well, with low competition, uh, larger rents allow firms to stay on the market, irrespective of, of credit. You see, if you are big monopolies, credit doesn't matter much. If you are, you know, credit rationing, you can use your own rents. So the effectiveness of monetary policy is less. And there is this reallocation effect I just mentioned, which also would play against you. Okay, those are two reasons why, with no competition, the effectiveness of monetary policy would be less to spur growth. Okay, so I don't need to. I will. Uh, uh, I will go. Uh, uh, then we use another program. Uh, it was before AC, A, uh, the ACC program. Now I have another Draghi program, and the Draghi program that I will consider is the OMT program. OMT for Outright Monetary Transaction. So what is this? Over 2011-2012, some major Euro-areas countries face similar spice in government bond yields, raising prospects of sovereign default. So then Draghi introduces the OMT. It's a commitment by the ECB to buy government debt and therefore acting as a monetary backstop under strict conditionality. So it was targeted at relatively short maturity bonds, but in fact its announcement was followed by massive changes also in long-term bond yields. And here I look at the effect of the unexpected part of the decrease in bond yield on growth. 
You see? So you have the OLT, I do a diffandive pre and post OLT, and I look at the effect of the unexpected reduction in long-term bond yields due to the OLT on productivity growth. You see what I mean? And I will show that this effect is bigger when you have more competition. That's, that's how I make the case. That's the short story. Okay, so even if you're alone, you cut me, you cut the microphone, you got the basic story, okay? So let's... Uh, let uh, go. So I told you the, the thing. So you have the, uh, we measure the unexpected component in bond yields by the difference between the bond yield and the expectation of the bond yield the year before. Uh, uh, so V is the realized bond yield uh, and E of V, blah, 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 is the forecasted bond yield at the end of the previous year. Okay? And we use the OECD economic outlook data and compute the variation in, uh, 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 in this uh, 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 forecast error, in the unexpected bond yield, which is there, we compute the variation uh, as a change in the average forecast error between before and after the implementation of OLT. You see what I mean? So I will just show you how it works on graphs. It's much more fun. It's this. You see? So look, look here. Okay? So look at this graph. So first, you have to look at the red curve. The red curve the red line is the forecast error on the short-term policy rate. So uh, before the uh, in this uh, before you had the uh, the the OMT, the, the the what you have is the the in fact the, during the sovereign debt crisis which was there in Spain the long the, the you see you were above you see the the short-term rate was uh, above the expectation you see what I mean okay. And then, as a result of OMT, they go below the expectation. You see that? And it's the effect of that. But you see what's like that's a change in monetary policy. But the nice thing, it had an effect on the long-term bond yield. These blue bars are the forecast error on the 10-year bond yield. You see? And here, you were, uh, 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 you were underestimated the long-term bond yield. They were higher than what you thought. And suddenly they become lower than what you thought. You see, life becomes easier than what you think it is. Okay, and is that the effect of that that you are looking on uh, on growth? And you see, in Spain, in Spain, uh, it rains in the Spain. You know, that that. You see, in Spain, you see suddenly things change a lot. Italy is very much like Spain. Okay, if you look at UK, Germany, France, it's less so. So let's now look into uh, uh, into now what happened to unemployment. So here I have the variation in the long-term unexpected bond yield. The, uh, before the, the OMT, the long-term bond yields were above expectation, they become below expectation. But here now, the red curve here is the, uh, the red curve here now is uh, uh, the forecast error on unemployment. Unemployment was higher than you thought and it becomes lower than what you thought. You see? And uh, that's in Spain and that's in Italy. You see, I mean, it's very, very clear. But then you can look at, at growth, similarly for growth. So growth, in fact, was lower than what you thought. It will become higher than what you thought. You see what I mean? So you have a true effect on growth and the true effect of the unexpected, uh, uh, changing the unexpected component of long-term bondage on growth in both uh, Italy and Spain. You see? And what I want to do now is to look at that and, with, and interact with product market regulation. So how much do I have? Minus how many minutes? I have still five more minutes. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. Okay. So uh, I will interact with product market regulation. So let me tell you about private market regulation. You see, the worst country is France. But with Macron, I tell you, it will move there. 
Okay? Okay, so that's the, that's the product market regulation. We are the worst of the worst. And, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, this side tells you that what the, the comp decompose between barrier to entrepreneurship, state control, and barrier to trade and investment. And what counts is barrier to invest entrepreneurship. I must say that there, Spain is not great. A barrier to entrepreneurship in Spain can be more. It works well in Catalonia, but I don't know if I got Catalonia. I don't know if this will change, if uh, the changing government will affect. Uh, I'm not there to do Spanish politics there. Okay. So what we do is now to regress growth in, uh, 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 in sector S in country C, and we see how growth will depend upon the variation in the unexpected long-term bond yields, uh, interacted with how much debt you had, and, uh, 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 and so here is how much debt you had, and that's the interaction between bond yields. So what I should find already is where you have more debt, the effect should be bigger. And then in the second regression, I will do triple interaction, I will put product market regulation on top. Okay? And I show you the result first of the third direction, then the result of the second, then I wrap up, and then you, uh, we are free. So here what you show is that the uh, uh, interaction between the unexpected bond yield and a vectoral indebtedness is positive. The more indebted you are, the, the bigger the effect. You see, one was Spain and Italy, the bigger effect than France, because on average, sectors were more indebted in Spain and Italy than everywhere else. But you can see that directly at sectoral level. So whenever you're in the sector, comes Draghi, it's a reaction, you are relaxed, okay? That's better, okay? But then, then you see, you interact further with product market regulation. And you see that this effect, which is positive interaction, then you have a, 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 a minus that comes from the regulation. When you're more regulated, this, this breath of, of fresh air that Draghi brings you is much reduced when you have product market regulation. That's why with France, for example, you could not as well, it could go as well as you want anywhere else. France would not benefit from growth anywhere else because we have too rigid product and labor market. And they are used to liberalize product and labor market so that whenever there is you know, some fresh air coming from the macro side, from the macro policy, suddenly, you know, you can, it's like a sailing boat. Have you sailed? Like, you know, France is uh, something where the, where the, uh, how do they say the same, no? Uh, it cannot, cannot uh, take the wind, quite. you see what I mean? And you want the sail to be able to take the wind. And product market regulation, what it does is to prevent the sail to take the drag beyond the wind. Well, that's the, that's the, that's the thing. So, uh, uh, I, I, uh, uh, so now I, I uh, alors here, the last uh, slide, I can look here at the growth effects of uh, a 10% increase in debt to equity ratio combined with a 10, 100 basis point expected drop in long-term bond yields. And what you can see is that uh, the, the effect of this combination of high debt, of course when you have low debt there is no effect of the, of the OMT. So you take high debt. The combination of higher debt and, and higher OMT, and, and OMT really uh, matters when you have uh, a product market regulation. What you show here is that the growth, uh, the, 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 the growth effect decreases with product market regulation. When you have low market regulation, you have a positive growth effect. And this positive growth effect goes down as product market regulation goes up. You see? That's what this shows. And then this shows, again, the growth effect of a 10% increase in debt to equity 
combined with 100 basis points on expected drop in bond yields for particular countries. And you can see here countries like Austria, Italy, uh, 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 that have high uh, uh, barrier to uh, industry. Uh, uh, you can see that for countries with high barrier to uh, investment, the lower yields benefit those countries, while they benefit less the countries that have higher barriers to industry. You see, it's the same as this, but except that here I give names to countries, whereas here I show everybody. Okay? So, now we are done. Now, conclusion of this second part. We looked at the effect of unexpected drop in long-term bond yields following the announcement of OMT. We found that heavily indebted sectors benefit disproportionately more from the unexpected drop than uh, uh, non-indebted, but only in countries or sectors where you have lower product market regulation, where you have higher product market competition. So, of course, where could you extend this study? Well, one, one way is to do firm level analysis. Here I should you sectoral on this. But you can do firm level and look at, at, uh, at uh, sectoral competition. And we, we have a whole part of the paper uh, uh, where we do that. Okay, so that's essentially done. Uh, uh, the other extension which uh, I, I plan to do with uh, Mario uh, uh, and uh, with Ipoliti uh, Wiss here is to move from monetary to fiscal, to do the fiscal policy, to exactly to put IO in the analysis of fiscal policy. For example, there is a whole debate on the multiplier between Barrow and Roberto Perotti and you know, and others, you know, who, do we believe in the multiplier or not, or whatever. They don't look in a, in a long, at long-term growth, but also the next thing, that there is no I.O. there. They don't say, maybe when you have high product market regulation, it doesn't work so well, but when you have low product regulation, it would work better. So what we want to do is to look at uh, how uh, fiscal policy interacts, but it's harder than monetary policy. You see, monetary policy, it's untargeted. When you lower the interest rate, you lower for everybody. When you do fiscal policy, usually it's very hard not to be targeted. Uh, you, you, you either directly or indirectly you target. And so you affect competition directly by doing that. That's the added difficulty of fiscal policy when you put IO there. Is that you're necessarily the IO is endogenous, you see, and you have to take that into account. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and so that's, that's a kind of a big thing on the agenda. I, I, I'm very excited about this, uh, this research. I hope to see it, uh, uh, you know, in my lifetime. <laughs> Conclusion. Uh, uh, firm dynamics and competition interfere in the relationship between financial development and growth. Credit easing can have negative reallocation effects, which result in an inverted U when combined with the direct positive effect that the literature had so far pointed out. Secondly, the growth effect of financial easing and more generally of proactive macroeconomic policy depends upon the degree of product market competition, but it's going to affect the degree of product market competition. You have really this huge agenda of putting IU in the analysis uh, of the effects of macro policies, and, uh, uh, and I think I will stop there. Uh, thanks very much. I don't know why I'm coming here. I think I'm, uh, I'm due to, re you can sit down. <laughs> to regulate questions, I think. As usual, this is fantastic. It's, uh, the enthusiasm and the innovation that's in the paper will stay with you for a long time. The only thing that will change when you go home is they realize that it's a lot more difficult than it seems. Because it all makes sense when Philippe says it. But it's a lot of work here. Uh, so we have half an hour for questions. Please go ahead. Would you introduce yourself? 
No, no, they give no, you No, there are microphones. Or oh, if you prefer to shout, you can also do that. Hi, I'm Ramin from UCL, uh, Department of Economics. My understand. I all uh, used to be there. Sorry? I, I've been there. In a okay, thank time. you. We would like to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is not uh, quite right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not that's allowed. That's what okay, you okay, exactly. I got, the, I got the question. Reallocation. Okay, here you go. And now you'll put back policy. Sure. Okay. Uh, my understanding is that what you're saying is that the effect of monetary policies really depends on policy decisions that are, you know, happening outside of the central bank, you know? Correct me if I'm wrong. What is the implication of this, of the research finding, with the relationship of the central bank and other institutions that are responsible for structural reforms and product market competition? No, you're right. I mean, uh, uh, so the idea is to say, is to encourage such reforms to say, you know, because you see, you have a big debate. Some people said that's austerity. For example, in France, they would call uh, structural reforms austerity. And that was very important to tell them this is totally wrong because when you liberalize, first, it's not austerity because when you liberalize the product market, the purchasing power of uh, consumers goes up. That's an obvious effect. But, it, it, but the most important thing is that you, you, you help the efficiency of the kind of macro policies that you are calling for. And I think that's, that's where the debate is, you see. It's not one versus the other. It's one who views the other. And that's what we try to push here, you see. Yeah, Tim. Hello, I'm Tim Besley from LSE. Um, so the two episodes you studied, Philippe, are, are interesting ones, but they're also very unusual because the thing, Draghi's interventions came in the midst of a major financial crisis. So on the one hand, that gives you the opportunity to study an extreme event. and to, if, there's no, if there's no effect in extreme times, then surely you wouldn't expect there to be in effect other times. But equally, um, what does it tell us, though, about what you might call the normal relationship between credit and growth? Because it could just be that these things matter only in, in extreme circumstances when credit markets are impaired. And actually, under normal conditions, the relationship is quite Alors, Already, I didn't show, but for example, already you have a placebo that I didn't show you. I, for example, when I did the ACC, I said, you know, it's between four, the, 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 the treatment group was the uh, rating four and the control group was five plus. Of course, you can look at other control and, and you see then it's flat. You see what I mean? Or you look at other periods and then you see it's flat. So you need a period where it makes a difference to be, uh, uh, to have that. And of course, there you see them as exceptional. And uh, it's true that these measures are taken at certain times and you look at them, uh, it's like the financial crisis in Korea. It was the financial crisis in Korea. You see what I mean? That's the problem is that these measures are taken, it's, it's much harder to look at the effects of very small change in interest rates. That's the difficulty. You want something significantly significant, but of course they come at certain times. But, but the nice thing is they don't affect everybody the same. For example, the lower agents in sectors makes no difference for France Germany, uh, UK, US makes no difference, the OMT. You see what I mean? It's already there. You, you can differentiate. And across sectors, when we do at firm level, and that's a response to what you say, you can also, within sectors, much more differentiate. And that, that's, that's as much as we can do. Uh, when you do fiscal policy, of course, you have all the time change in tax and things, but the difficulty there is that you have a direct impact on competition. You see, that's a, that's a difficulty. So whenever you are less targeted, it's, it's because usually, typically, you have special, you know, 
events that justify a, a significant non-targeted, but you have all the time more targeted, but the more targeted are subject to the fact that you that right away you are biased. Quoi. So you, you can't have it on both sides, and you, you, can, you can try the various things. That's my way, that's my first answer to you. Yes? Um, I think you make the assumption um, that where you have um, concentration, um, that this um, uh, in, inhibits um, innovation. But uh, am I correct in that, uh, summarizing that? But is that some, I, I show evidence. I mean, yeah, evidence yeah. That, that's, okay, yeah, that fine. That you can have a negative allocation effect. Yeah. yeah, so let's take that as uh, given. But um, I don't think you include the factor that um, these firms that have that concentration then acquire other firms and don't necessarily exit with their, with their um, uh, product lines so that they can maintain um, innovation. Could, could you address that issue so I have it more clearly? Yeah, so you're right that firms, uh, the, that big firms, to some extent, acquire other firms uh, uh, that manage. But the problem is that those other firms need to exist somehow, maybe small, but to exist. And the problem is that uh, they, they, their entry is inhibited. You see, not, they, they, you need to enter first to then be maybe swallowed by a bigger firm or not, you see. So that is, to some extent, uh, inhibited. It's true that the big firms tend to acquire small firms. And by the way, it's interesting that the, mo the most important innovation are made, and that's been worked by Axigit and Care and others, showing that biggest innovation are made by in small firms. Uh, uh, and of course, sometimes then are, uh, you have people who used to, for example, work at IBM. They, they, they become spin-offs. Then they become big. They need to find money to innovate. And then uh, if things go well, they are repurchased later on by the big firm. So that's the good case. But it's true that uh, uh, the, having big firms uh, can somehow still discourage. The very good one will be rebought. But there may be people who are rather good and not extremely good that may be inhibited. You see what I mean? And, uh, and, you'll, and what, you, the, what uh, the regression shows you is the overall effect, you see. And uh, maybe the very, very good is like, you know, uh, you say I put fees in universities, the very, very good one get the grants, but the, those who are good but not extremely good may, 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 may be deterred from entering the university. You see, that's of these kind of effects. Yes. Hi, Philippe. Thank you for your great uh, lecture. I have a question about financial development. Because sorry, in your paper, you... Can you introduce yourselves when you ask questions? Okay, sorry. Briefly. <laughs> hi, hi, I'm Wei Handy. I'm a PhD student in the econ department here. So uh, my question is about financial development. Because in your research, you define it as a level of easiness of getting money. I think another possible financial measure of financial development would be the, the less of misallocations. For example, in China you have more funds go to non-state-owned companies than state-owned companies. Yeah. I would expect this kind of financial development should be monotonic effect on growth. I'm, I'm not sure. So should this also means like this can give us some uh, suggestion about what kind of financial development policy you want to have? Would you prefer to do more structural or just providing more funds? Yeah, that's, you're right. I mean, it would be interesting to see how you develop financial. Is it more banking? Is it more, uh, uh, you know, uh, market finance? Which kind of finance you would do different things? <clears throat> and how is it government uh, 
subsidies or whatever, and it's interesting to see the various channels of, of finance, is to go more into mapping to different sources of finance, which, may, which have, for the same amount of finance, different reallocation effects. And that, that, would, be a, that would be a very interesting agenda to pursue. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Thank you for a very animated presentation. It was excellent. Uh, Paul McGrail, uh, Peace News. Staying with that last question, if most of the innovation that we think of is uh, tech startups, whether they be here or Stockholm or Lisbon, you know, it moves around a bit. But the the, the initial capital the, the, is coming. The financial development is coming from venture capitalist VC. Um, and then it goes on to the tier one and mezzanine capital and if you're successful. But all of that is outside of the traditional um, sources. You know, and so I, my, I couldn't quite understand why there was such an emphasis on, say, on the ratings because innovation and the startups are not – they have nothing uh, – there's nothing to base uh, their, ba uh, their ratings on in terms of – Indebted uh, uh, risk risk management. So I'm just curious if you know how how the um, the new sources, the you know dark banking and hedge funds and private equity, how they relate to to. Um, what, what, you, what you've spoken yeah. about tonight. So you're right in the sense that it's true. Alors, there have been other studies done by others that in more innovating economies. It, it, to have equity financing uh, is more, becomes increasingly important quoi, because you, uh, you, know, the, you have intangible assets uh, and so the financier wants to have control at the beginning and more of the upside. And so, of course, equity financing, venture capital is more adapted to that. It's been worked by Kaplan and Stromberg and others uh, looking at that. So that, that goes back to the question I was asking. And it's true that more innovative, that when you are an, an economy uh, catching up economy or imitating economy, Bank finance is enough, you, know, you don't need equity financing. When you are more into frontier innovation, it's true that increasingly you need more equity financing. But still, uh, uh, the, the extent to which you will have that equity financing is interesting that uh, in countries where firms are leveraged, and we saw that leverage was high rates in uh, developed countries, uh, this kind of uh, easing policy have a big effect, quoi. like they did in the U.S. Or they have in the... So it's interesting why you also in the U.S. where you have the venture capital and all that, you had such high lever leverage of of households and firms, and that's an interesting question. And as long as soon as you have that, you have effect of this uh, of this monetary policy. Then, if you if you have an economy, so you see, but uh, so that well, that that's my uh, that's my answer to what you. Uh, but it's true also that venture capital they refinance themselves. I mean, you see what I mean. So they are not totally independent of the banking system. Uh, it's not a, there is complete orthogonality between venture capital and, uh, and private equity and, uh, you know, the, the, the rate at which banks can finance themselves and all that. So I think that there are, there are relationships. It's true, that, it's true that it would be very interesting to go more in detail about what the finance literature can tell you and, and map with the, the different instruments of finance.
Also, there is a big issue is that on banks, you have the large banks who do not finance very innovative projects because they don't have time. But more retail banks, they have more time to look at banks. You know, work by Jeremy Stein, for example, uh, looks at that and shows that retail banks and smaller banks, they, they can much more go into innovative projects, but they can look in detail. Whereas large banks are more bureaucratic. So that's, so that's very interesting. I'm going to the internal organization of the financial institution and see how that maps with the innovation process. Well, there are many, many things to be done. Hi, I'm Catherine Connolly from Economic Sense. I just want to go back to the policy implications of your second bullet. So, you know, say I'm talking to a minister in government tomorrow and, and, you know, we're looking at that and you're thinking, well, this is terrible. Um, You know, I I don't want to change financial development and structural reform is is quite tricky. You'd probably end up with a third policy, which is um, giving financial incentives to startups or something and making it much easier for startups. That's what I've come up with just now. But, but what would your policy advice be? Uh, well, I mean, I would be very cautious. When I give policy advice, we want to make sure that you... Kind of first policy advice is that uh, to ease the work of the ECB and this kind of institution, try to do structural reforms. Already, that's a first order. So when I do this kind of advice in France, I know it's a safe, it's a safe advice, okay? So we are so much below the efficiency frontier that already there, you know, we can do much, much better, uh, uh, it's true that uh, you have to beware when you, when you, uh, you know, there's been other papers also saying that it's, it's important to have quantity easing in recession, but if you maintain quantity easing and low interest rate in expansion phase, then these reallocation effects start becoming important. There's been work, other work by ECB people, there's been work uh, by colleagues of mine, previous colleagues of mine, Gita Gopinath and others in the Quarterly Journal of Economics showing that, uh, you know, I think it was Spain or Portugal, I forgot, where they showed that there was a misallocation uh, in important misallocation of credit. So this effect is there. So for example, that's why you want counter-cyclical policies. You see what I mean? We know that in recessions you need to, uh, you know, uh, make firms' life easier. You want to have a kind of automatic stabilizer for firms, and you want to have quantity easing. But when, when you when the, at the end of the recession, maintaining this kind of policy can have misallocation, important misallocation effects. So, so, so the idea there, and there are some people who believe that there's never time to, to go back to save more, to uh, increase interest rates. I don't say you should increase interest rates tomorrow by big things, you see what I mean? But you should have the view that uh, macro policy should be counter-cyclical and should not be always uh, expansionary, you see what I mean? Uh, uh, because in, in, you have costs in, in booms. Uh, if you have already a boom and you do this kind of policy, you, then you, these effects start looming larger. That's the... I am Adrien Couture from the uh, Department of Economics. Uh, so I guess my question follows up on the previous one. How can we have a common uh, growth policy in Europe? Uh, given the a growth policy in Europe, a yeah. common common policy given oh, the yeah. heterogeneity in Europe of... Yeah, we are very far from this. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, Europe, we are currently... Uh, uh, witnessing, uh, you know, uh, dislocation of Europe, you see what I mean, rather than, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very sad. Quoi. So I think uh, it's very important already, I believe personally, that France and Germany should try to initiate projects together. They are the, they are the core 
and uh, and then have something uh, who likes me joins me. You see what I mean? A kind of. Uh, but we should start with uh, you know Macron taking advantage that Macron is really reforming. Uh, Merkel will never have someone who reforms like Macron and a partner like that. And with the Grand Coalition in Germany and Macron in France, that I think would be the basis of uh, working together. And then if a momentum is created, other, others will join. Uh, uh, I think it's uh, on, and on projects, very much project-based. You see, I don't believe in grand scheme, come up and suggest to the Germans they should have a mutualization of everything. They will always say no. But if you tell them, let's build borders, let's build, uh, let's go on research together, or let's do uh, particular programs, you see, uh, then I think uh, around that we can recreate a dynamics which now is, uh, which now is missing. But the, 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 the luck we have on competition is that competition policy in, in the in EU is decided at EU level. So that's a good thing, actually. Uh, uh, that's something that other countries don't have. And so we, we have someone who monitors, you see, the, the potentially detrimental effect of industrial policy, for example. That's, uh, that's something we should explore, we should uh, take advantage of. Hi, I'm Mado. Um, I'm a A-level student at a school here in Hammersmith. Um, my quick question, so I'm writing a dissertation about fintech in Africa. And my question is essentially that, well, fintech has made it easier for startups uh, and SMEs in Africa to have access to credit. So I was wondering how this will affect uh, the whole idea of your inverted U relationship. Um, since so financial constraints are decreasing, does that mean productivity will increase? And essentially, like your general view on fintech in Africa. So like, is Africa moving towards innovation-based growth instead of imitation-based growth? I think it's the same question that I wanted to ask from the yes. development point yes. of view, which is that there is the view that uh, access to finance also facilitates an improvement in allocation by allowing uh, productive firms to enter. Because yeah. if entrepreneurs are credit constrained, they can't come into the of market. Of course, here I look at the case where the incumbents were credit Exactly, because the instrument that you're using affects only yeah. the incumbents. Exactly. But it's of not. course, you have the case where mainly it's the entrance, and there you have, again, the unambiguous positive, positive effect, effect, which we already had in the literature. Exactly. So that's the case. So I wanted, of course, I focus on the case which would allow me to generate the, other, exactly. the, the reallocation effect. But of course, the other one is also there. And the question is, when is the, inc the one on incumbents binding or not? I think how do I know that some instrument will, will, will bind exactly on the, because on the incumbents at the entrance? Exactly, because the instrument yeah. that you're using, exactly. the compliers for this yeah. instrument are yeah. actually the elephants. Yeah, exactly. They're not the new yes, young right. entrepreneurs. Right. Those who have the quotation. The gazelles, are the, are exactly. The other exactly. ones are, are not yet there. Exactly. Uh, Thank you, very, <clears throat> thank you very much for your talk. It's very exciting. Quite enjoy it. Where does the ordinary person in France, are you talking about the whole of the people in France doing this type of thinking to say, well, raise the whole country up or just for the special people, like the entrepreneurs and st stuff like that? Where does ordinary people fit into the whole scheme of this? So to whom in France am I speaking or... I, mean, I do an analysis. I mean, I'm not a politician, I'm, um, uh, so I do research, and then people can, can use on, uh, you know, the research result that I have. So I'm not there to do politics, I'm there to, to research. My, my research for the past 30 years has been to understand better 
the determinants of productivity growth, of innovation-based growth, but, you know, and, and, and also why some countries start catching up and stop catching up, uh, uh, understand the effect of competition on growth more globally, uh, understands how growth and the environment interact. You see what I mean? Uh, um, so that, that's, that, that has been my growth and unemployment and, and looking at firm level. You see, before I did growth, I mean, there was very little firm level growth. People were comparing countries and using essentially the neoclassical growth model. And we came with models where you, which you test using firm level data, more, much more micro data. And when you link growth to competition, firm dynamics, and, and when you look at policies, you see how it interacts. You do reforms in India, for example, to spur growth in India, but you see how this reform will affect the firm dynamics and through that channel will affect the growth process in India and differently so depending on labor market in the, in the, in the province or depending on infrastructure in the province. You see, that's the kind of agenda that I've been uh, trying to do. And the kind of enigmas that I've been after is the secular stagnation that I mentioned, is the middle income trap where some countries start growing and then they stop. Uh, also why Japan, which is not a middle income, has grown so fast and then stopped growing. Uh, why, why is that? You see what I mean? Uh, uh, and uh, another issue is inequality. I didn't talk about that, the relationship between growth and inequality and, mo and social mobility. How are those related? That's been something a bigger concern. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking into these kind of enigmas, but others are also. Jamario uh, is here, uh, very active, uh, looking at the, at the link between uh, firm dynamics and growth and trade. And, uh, and, and that's a huge agenda. What's very exciting about this agenda is that now you have all these new data sets, which are very micro data sets, which you can build and do a lot of things with. And, uh, and that's a very exciting time, because uh, uh, you can do much more than you could you do before. Before, all what you could do was to, uh, was to solve a Bellman equation. Now you, can, uh, now you can do real exciting work. I think you're being too modest, because I think that these results have direct implications for the normal people. Because if we allow the elephants to stay in the market, then products are going to be of worse quality than they could have been in the counterfactual, oh, where a better firms... And there will be no innovation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this links directly to the welfare of the people. Yeah, I think. So. thank you very much. Great. Yeah, I think we are... I think we are dead. <laughs> the, yes, no, I don't, exactly. I think there is one more question. One more question, exactly. Uh, hello. Uh, there's... Been a lot of, uh, there was a lot of criticism for, about macroeconomics in the UK about the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah. And um, possibly one of the issues is that macroeconomics didn't incorporate industrial organization thinking very well. Yeah. So where, where would you see the most promising agendas for IO coming into macroeconomic thinking? For example, here we already got an example saying, you know, is quantity easing more effective when you have a product market? Uh, and, uh, and you can look at labor market. For example, here we look at product market. We could look at labor market. Uh, that would be another one to look at. Um, and uh, and all the debate on the multiplier, we are revisiting with product market uh, competition there. I think it's very important. Uh, um, so well, those are the kind of things uh, in macro that uh, I would... Uh, Look at. And also, the relationship between volatility and growth, how is that affected, more generally, by, by, by uh, the market structure? Uh, I think that's... Uh, it's, it's, it's like redoing macro with, with IO everywhere. So macro is huge, 
people don't agree. I heard about a conference in Stockholm where I was not. Where people actually were either fighting or not listening to each other. There were the banking people and the neo-Keynesian. Apparently, uh, it was a Babel Tower. Well, that's what I heard. And, and uh, 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 so maybe with this, they can talk. Uh, people can talk to each other more. Maybe we have a link there that would allow people to uh, to start interacting more. Uh, it's true. Macro is a bit in a mess now, these days. Well, we count on a new generation to make it. Uh, to change the, the landscape because you had in between the RBCs and, and a kind of very rigid way of doing the neo-Keynesian, uh, macro was a bit in a deadlock. So we need new blood and new thinking in macro, I think, uh, very much. Uh, I think growth has been, pro I'm a bit biased, but thanks to a number of people, growth has been, pro but the non-growth part of macro, I think, is still is, is a kind of sick person that needs uh, doctors and uh, to, to take care of. Yeah. Shall we take one last question? Yeah. I'm curious about maybe what may be a classification issue or might be something broader. I mean, if you go to the Bank of England here and say, what is the goal of monetary policy? They would say primarily it's to influence demand. And financing of firms is something which should happen on the macroprudential side. You seem to have inverted this a little bit in your analysis because you're looking at broad interest rates and then saying, how is it, how does, how does that influence the financing of firms? And maybe you can comment on that a bit. So I think there are two aspects. Is, is first to look at monetary policy, and that's again the agenda. You look at monetary policy of from the point of view of firms and market structure. You see, taking market structure into account, that's a new thing. I mean, very little is done in, in central banks on that. Okay, they don't look how firm dynamics, for example, is affected by monetary policy. That's very little done. Very few people do that. So that is a huge thing to do. But also there is the aspect of what, what goes through demand and through supply. So I have two colleagues. One is Benigno and uh, Fornaro. Benigno is, is, is our colleague. And they did a very interesting paper where they had a demand effect, where they had uh, uh, the effect that, you know, expected bigger cons uh, consumption growth uh, create a market size effect that induces you to innovate. But do you see what I mean? But at the same time, you had a kind of uh, a zero lower bound. You had a demand side of the story. You see what I mean? And they put the two sides together a market size effect and a zero lower bound uh, effect. And they look at the two interacted. I think that paper is illuminating because it's putting the two things together. That's, that's kind of this, you need more of these models, you see, to put the, the demand side and the supply side together. Fantastic. I hope you want to join me in thanking Philippe for this amazing lecture. Thanks very much for organizing this, inviting Beautiful. me.